This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the creation account presented in the Bible. Primarily, the Academy offers video and audio courses with downloadable PDF workbooks taught by a team of experienced creation researchers. But members of our exclusive Creation All Access program will also have access to expert interviews and Q&A sessions with creation scientists and apologists, all inside a private Facebook group where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. We're excited to announce that enrollment is now open. The Academy does not officially launch until March 2019, but until then, you can get into Creation All Access for just $7 per month while we're adding new course material. Join today by going to www.creationcourses.com and clicking on Enroll Now. You're listening to The Steve Schramm Show, a weekly podcast training Christians to become confident and passionate servants of Jesus so they can uh, grow in their walk with God and share their faith more persuasively. We're happy to have you here with us today. We're talking about a subject that I have just been knee-deep in for uh, the past few um, weeks, a little over a month, probably, uh, maybe even two months, actually studying uh, a little bit more about this and, and, and getting ready ultimately to record this podcast uh, episode. And uh, next week's as well is also going to be related, but we're going to cover the meat of the topic really uh, all in this one. Now, that's not to say that next week isn't important. Next week is going to be important because uh, we're going to talk about some of the potential difficulties um, with today's subject matter. So I, I've got some uh, some housekeeping to talk about, but I'm going to save that for the end of the episode because I really want to get this training lesson in first. I really want to dive directly into the subject matter today. Uh, and then at the very end, I'll tell you about some things that we've got planned for 2019. Um, not a lot of, uh, you know, changes or anything. Uh, we change things all the time around here just because we want to make sure that we're, we're talking to the right people. We're serving the right audience. We're helping the people who we feel God has led us to help. Um, but basically we've got a few things that are uh, in the works to make the podcast better this year. And that is what I will tell you a little bit about at the end of the episode. Now you're going to get a bit of a teaser as to what one of those things is, uh, because I'm getting ready to mention it. Um, Namely, that there is going to be a lesson handout that goes along with this podcast lesson. Um, those who've been listening for a long time, you know that I really do try to make each podcast episode uh, less uh, about just some item of, of commentary that I'm interested in. Um, it's more so about actually teaching you and training you uh, on some aspect of creation or some aspect of uh, 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 of apologetics or sharing your faith or, or growing in your 
walk with God, it's usually some sort of in-depth training that I've got lots of notes for. Sometimes it's even based on a book. Um, And so today is no different. Now, not every episode is like that, but the vast majority are. And what I am going to do is give you something to help you make what we talk about on today's lesson uh, more practical in your life. I'm going to help give you some practical tools to be able to, uh, in some cases, it will be to apply what we've talked about or uh, to um, uh, to be able to put it into action in some sort of you know witnessing capacity or something like that. Uh, so for this particular week, what I'm going to give you in a lesson handout is going to be uh, my five-step response to the distant starlight issue, my five-step response to the distant starlight issue. Basically, I'm going to take you through literally step-by-step when I personally receive challenges about how to deal with the young age creationist distant starlight issue. I'm going to give you the five steps in order that you need to be able to respond the same way that I do. And in order to get that, all you have to do is go over to the show notes. So you're going to go to steveschram.com slash 072, steveschram.com slash 072. And that's how you're going to get to the show notes for this episode where you will be able to enter your information and download the uh, five-step response to the distant starlight issue that I personally uh, press into service myself. I use it myself. So hopefully uh, you will have good results with it. Now, that's kind of a teaser for what we're talking about today, because what we're going to talk about is a brand new solution to the distant starlight problem. A brand new solution to the distant starlight problem. And guys, I'm really excited about it. Um, As a matter of fact, to get us started, it's going to require just a little bit of background, a little bit of uh, personal background. Um... I have made the comment in the past that, you know, astronomy is an area of creation research that I think could use some, you know, improvement. Um, And some of this, some of my making that comment stems from, undoubtedly from my ignorance of the subject, okay? Okay. I am weaker on astronomy and astrophysics, things like that, than I am anything else. So that, you know, maybe that causes you to pause thinking about even listening to the rest of this. Uh, but just know that I've, I've, I've done my research, I've done my study, and I've really tried to make this training uh, something that y- you can rely on. So uh, I don't think you have any reason to fear that you're going to get misinformation from me today. At the same time, just know that this has been one of my weaker areas. And so I guess, in a way, I kind of translated that out. And I thought, well, uh, you know, I'm not really satisfied with a lot of the astronomy solutions that are out there. Now, I did in episode 58, I think, I did talk about the current state of creation astronomy. And in many ways, my sentiments echo that of Dr. Danny Faulkner, who authored that state of creation astronomy. Uh, he's done two of them now. And my echo, my, my statements um, and my sentiments kind of echo his in many ways. There are areas which we've made great progress in, and there are areas where we've made virtually zero progress in since 1998, which is the last time that he did 
uh, a current state of of creation astronomy uh, paper. So that's where we're at. Um, there are certainly things that need to be improved upon. Um, there have been many new suggestions for the distant starlight issue. Granted, each of them are um, better than what used to be, you know, the the mainstream creationist, you know, response to that, which would have been something like a starlight created in transit kind of a view. Uh, of course, for a while, um, there was another view made popular by uh, Barry Setterfield, and, and there have been others, but basically, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but basically, um, there has not, in my opinion, been been a very great response uh, on the distant starlight issue, even with some of the newer models that were out there. Um, I know many people who personally hold to some version of um, Humphrey's time dilation model. Um, I'm not an expert in it, to be honest. If, if you wanted me to give you just like, even a quick summary of that model, I probably couldn't without having to read something. Um, I'm, I'm just not convinced, um, even by his scriptural arguments, which I have looked at a little bit. I'm not convinced that that view works with scripture, personally. Now, I, I have plenty of people who are close to me who are convinced that that view um, is permissible. I have some who go further than that, uh, who are close to me, and say that, that that's the view that they hold. They really believe that that's the truest, uh, that that's the true view, but that's the best view that we have. Um, myself, I gravitated, if anywhere, towards something like Jason Lyle's anisotropic um, synchrony convention, uh, whereby the the way that we understand how the speed of light works is observer-specific. It depends on uh, what synchrony convention the observer is using. And Lyle makes arguments that, uh, you know, that rest on the work of Einstein to show this. Um, and, uh, of course, modern astronomy uh, uses the Einstein synchrony convention, whereby the round trip uh, of, of the speed of light is exactly the same. Uh, it, it's the same going both directions. Well, Lyle wants to basically say, well, look, why? You know, if we can show that the Bible uses a, a certain synchrony convention, maybe we can show that it's the other way around. And uh, Dr. Lyle makes the argument that he thinks the Bible is using what we the what we would call an anisotropic synchrony convention. Um, but still, the burden lies with the observer to decide, you know, which convention he's going to use. Now, according to Lyle, if he's going to be consistent, if he's going to be biblical, you know, he's going to he's going to go with um, the, the the synchrony convention used by the Bible, which he argues is the ASC, um, whereby light um, is is permitted to to travel one way uh, toward us and another way away from us. So if we say that light travels toward the earth um, instantaneously, but away from the earth at, you know, 186,000 miles per second, um, then that is essentially uh, what his solution would maintain. And that's what the Bible maintains. And that's why light from distant stars can get to us Immediately. Okay, so like I said, if anything, I've gravitated toward that response or uh, Danny Faulkner's kind of 
view, which isn't very well developed yet by his own demis- uh, admission. He calls it um, uh, the Dasha theory or Dasha, uh, however you say that Hebrew word. Um, I haven't looked that up, but but he, he talks about that theory. Um, basically, it, it maintains that it was a, there was a miraculous translation of light happening. Uh, it's something that the light was miraculously stretched and... it's not really a solution attainable by science, at least not yet. There's nothing scientific that we can observe about it. It's it's mostly based on the, on the scriptural arguments. Um, Hartnett actually has argued against that view, uh, saying that there are some things that we should expect if that view is true, some physical identifiers that would, you know, lend credence to that, and it's not been observed. Those things have not been observed. And so, you know, if anything, I've been leaning more towards Lyle's view. But the problem for me with it, and the problem with many others, and indeed a common criticism of it, as we're going to talk a little bit more about next week, is that it just seems kind of arbitrary. Um, in other words, we're not, we're not when we use the synchrony convention, we're not talking about anything um, scientific per se. In that we're not we're not requiring uh, when we just talk about the ASC, we're not talking about certain requirements in space in order to have this view. We're we're, we're basically it's the it's in the way we talk about things. It's in the semantics basically. And there's just something that seems hopelessly arbitrary about that. Um, even if you can make the case that that that's the synchrony convention that the Bible uses, for those who are maybe unacquainted with the physics, and I'm going to raise my hand, I mean, that kind of includes me, it just seems hopelessly arbitrary. Now, maybe somebody who understands a little bit more about synchrony conventions, etc., uh, you know, could, could, could come to terms with it. Uh, but that wasn't me, certainly. And uh, many people who I know who do, in fact, uh, have that acquaintance with physics, don't hold this view for the same reason. They, they feel like that it's arbitrary. Well, that is where I would like to introduce to you this new solution. So the title of today's lesson, which you've already seen, is Distant Starlight and Creation Time Coordinates. Distant Starlight and Creation Time coordinates. What we're discussing is another one of the papers that was submitted to the 2018 International Conference on Creationism back in July. And this paper was authored by three uh, names, two of which are not very familiar, one of which ought to be very familiar to you. So first we have, um, I hope I don't mess his name up, I think he just goes by Tico, but the name is Ticomir, it looks like, um, Tenev, Ticomir Tenev, um, from Mississippi State University, the Department of Computational Engineering there at Mississippi State, um, and uh, also we have Dr. John Baumgartner uh, from the Lagos Research Associates, and which is the name you should recognize, by the way. Uh, Dr. Baumgartner is no uh, no stranger to creation studies. So we've got Dr. Tenev, Dr. Baumgartner, and then M.F. Horstemeyer from the Center of Advanced Vehicular Systems, also at Mississippi State University. These three have come together and argued for a new solution 
uh, to the distant starlight problem using what they call creation time coordinates. So we've got a lot to talk about today. I'm going to go ahead and dive right in. I'm going to start by reading the abstract and hopefully that'll get us started on the right foot and into the discussion. Here's what they say in the abstract of this paper, quote, We present a solution for the distant starlight problem that is consistent with scripture, special relativity, and observations of a young cosmos that is based on a special divine choice of initial conditions and a new synchrony convention. The initial conditions constrain the space-time coordinates of all stellar creation events, Genesis 1.17, to be just outside the past light cone of Earth's day four, but within the past light cone of Earth's day five, while also being causally independent from one another. The Synchrony Convention interprets God's numbering of the creation days in Genesis 1 as prescribing a time coordinate for each location in the cosmos, a coordinate we call the Creation Time Coordinate, or CTC. The CTC at a given star is defined as the elapsed time since that star was created plus three days. Two events are considered simultaneous or synchronous if and only if they have the same CTCs. We show that for these initial conditions and synchrony convention, starlight emitted on day four, stellar CTC, arrives at Earth also on day four, Earth CTC. Our solution is a reformulation of Lyell's solution. Uh, from the Newton 2001 paper, which, by the way, that is Jason Lyle. That was Robert uh, Robert Newton authored that paper, but it was Jason Lyle writing under a pen name. And then Lyle also in 2010. But ours spells out the required initial conditions, without which Lyle's solution is ambiguous. It also replaces Lyle's use of the anisotropic synchrony convention, which is an observer-specific subjective definition of simultaneity, with the CTC synchrony convention, which is a divinely prescribed objective definition of simultaneity. Our solution predicts that stellar objects should appear youthful because the light we receive from them displays it only a few thousand years after their creation. We show for our own galaxy the number of observed supernova remnants and observed supernova frequency support this prediction. Finally, we discuss the strong agreement among current creationist cosmogonies, or excuse me, cosmologies regarding space-time coordinates of the stellar creation events relative to the creation of Earth itself. Close quote. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot there. And don't worry, we're getting ready to um, tackle it. Now, when I first read through this paper, and by the way, I've read the paper um, three times. I have read a lot of the supporting works for the paper. I've read that they uh, they give you a special relativity primer at the at the end of the paper on some different things you need to understand. I've read that. I've watched other videos. I've really tried to understand what I'm talking about here, despite my admitted, I mean, up front, I admit that I am 
not an expert on this. I've actually reached out to Tico himself to ask him some questions. I've talked to a friend of mine who uh, is very well versed in creation astronomy. So um, I've done my work here. Now, I had some initial concerns when I was initially reading this paper. Um, I thought about uh, the B theory of time. Uh, I, I don't know if you follow William Lane Craig at all, the philosopher, but he has argued that uh, time is um, something something that is not illusory. In other words, there are two overarching theories of time. I, I do not have time to get into this. I will link you to a blog post, though, that I recently wrote about God's relationship to time, and that gives you kind of a primer on this. But the bottom line is, I worried that this... Uh, I'm convinced by Craig's um, assessment that the A theory of time is probably true, meaning that temporal becoming is real and not illusory. And when I first read this, I thought, oh, gee, I think this paper relies on the B theory of time. So I was concerned about that. And I actually reached out to Tico, uh, you know, himself, um, one of the primary authors, you know, on the paper, talked to him, and he actually holds to temporal becoming. So he assured me there was no contradiction in still continuing to believe in the A theory of time and holding this particular model. So there's no problems there. I worried about whether it was arbitrary. Uh, after reading the paper a few times through, I don't think it's arbitrary. Um, so we're going to hopefully alleviate some of those concerns. Uh, if not this week, next week they will be probably alleviated even more. And then I also, after reading through it, uh, a cursory reading, I was like, well, you know, this this denies some fundamental tenets of cosmology. And it does, and we'll talk about those. However, it affirms and does nothing uh, to to cast doubt upon the um, fundamental tenets of cosmology that are necessary. In other words, it does deny some fundamental um, assumptions of cosmology that is not biblically based, but they're just assumptions. They're not necessary. And so we're going to talk about all of that and hopefully alleviate your fears and concerns if you have them like I did. So, um, the problem and its history. I want to talk a little bit about that. And now we've already um, mentioned uh, a little bit about this in the intro. So, we're not going to spend a ton of time here. Basically, historically, there have been a few um, different solutions. Uh, 1976, we saw light created in transit. That was Morris's um, suggestion. That held for quite some time. Um, in 1989, Setterfield, Barry Setterfield, he introduced the variable speed of light uh, kind of understanding, and there were some different modifications on that. Those two have been largely rejected and discredited at this point. There are very, very few people who would hold to those um, to those models, especially, uh, I mean, close to zero, I would say, um, within uh, the um, the fold of creationist astronomers and astrophysicists. Okay, there was the gravitational time dilation suggestion. This was brought about initially by Humphreys in 1994, and there were, of course, some additional later modifications to that. Um, 
Even as early as last year, Humphreys introduced uh, some more scriptural arguments for his view, and we might talk about those a little bit next week. Um, Building on that, Hartnett offered a supernatural time dilation model. That was around 2003. He has since come to... um, reject his time dilation model and embrace almost without any kind of contest um, Lyle's uh, model of the anisotropic synchrony convention. He's even made some modifications to it to allow for some uh, redshift mechanisms and things of that nature. Um, So that's where Hartnett stands. That's Josh Hartnett. Um, um, And then, or John Hartnett. I can't, I can never get that right. I think Josh Hartnett might be an actor. Uh, Anyway, um, so, and then we have Lyle's um, Anisotropic Synchrony Convention. Of course, we talked about that. That was um, really developed in 2010 by Lyle. And the um, Dasha or Dasha theory, uh, Faulkner's introduction in 2013, which at the time, uh, it's still not developed, by the way, but at the time when he introduced it, he didn't really introduce it as a solution so much as just a proposition for a new way of thinking about the creation account. And I have to say that, you know, um, I liked his solution. It was very theologically satisfying. Um, And I kind of had begun to drift into this state of thinking that maybe, you know, this initial creation event just really can't be dealt with, with science at all. Um, And honestly, I think this paper is causing me to... (laughs) to really rethink that. I think we can, and especially since we kind of have to deal with this distant starlight issue, um, I think that this solution, while it is meant to deal with the distant starlight issue, it indirectly kind of, you know, talks about, uh, it, it, it's it's not a full cosmology, but it's the beginnings of one. Let me say that. Um, it is the it is a great start to the beginning of a great creationist cosmology that as these guys all strive towards consensus, I mean, this could really be the foundational element that it does make room for building in other elements to really get to a full creation cosmology. This would not disqualify other um advancements, uh, and certainly uh, fits within the bounds of special relativity, as has been discussed. Um, they speak a little bit about the uh, the division of the recent consensus. They say, recently, leading creationist cosmologies seem to have converged around two kinds of solutions to the distant starlight problem. One consistent with a visible cosmos that has aged many millions of years, while the other posits a visible cosmos that has aged only thousands. Um... And again, this would kind of be the difference between something like Lyle's understanding and also um, something like the time dilation understanding. Now, the authors, you know, take special time in the paper to mention Hartnett's um, conversion, if you will, from one model to the other because this represents a mainstream creationist astronomer really making the leap between those two camps um, based on, you know, whatever factors. And, um, so if basically they say that Hartnett had previously endorsed and built upon, you know, Humphrey's time dilation model, which I already mentioned. And, um, here's what they say that he has since quote, expressed close to unqualified support for Lyle's ASC model and has even proposed enhancement to it, including a mechanism for redshift close quote. So, um, 
you know, again, what we're dealing with here is somebody who has made the shift from a visible cosmos that has aged millions of years to a visible cosmos that has not. So this is a good sign, um, I think, that we're heading, you know, kind of in the right direction. Um, Faulkner, now I didn't write this down on my notes, so I'm flying uh, a little bit, you know, solo here, but um, Faulkner has also, you know, um, expressed some serious doubt about Lyle's anisotropic synchrony convention. And, uh, you know, I'm one of those guys, it's hard for me when I have people who I respect very well, uh, and they disagree, I have a hard time dealing with that. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's just some psychological, emotional problem I have. Maybe you guys have that too. Uh, but when I get two guys who I, I consider both to be extremely smart, and I consider both to be very well respected, um, and I consider both to be very, very concerned with being biblically and you know theologically faithful and scientifically faithful and i see this disagreement i think you know oh boy what's what's going on why the conflict um and i really think that a paper like this um could alleviate faulkner's concerns on lyle's asc model because i think that a lot of people had those similar concerns um and so i'll be interested to see what happens if if faulkner takes this paper seriously um and and what um future developments based on it hold uh, so we have done a lot of talking um, <laughs> about uh, about this thing. It's just about time that we dive into it and actually talk about it. Um, let me briefly, though, talk about the point that the CTC, the Creation Time Coordinate Solution, is a reformulation of Lyle's anisotropic synchrony convention. Now, here's the difference. The CTC spells out the initial conditions. This is a big deal. And I tried to emphasize this when I was reading the abstract. It spells out the um, initial conditions without which that the authors feel Lyle's solution is um, ambiguous and incomplete, to use their terminology. Ambiguous and incomplete. So in other words, they firmly believe that Lyle is barking up the right tree but that he doesn't quite go far enough with the model for it to be accepted plausibly scientifically within the greater scientific community. But he's barking up the right tree, according to the authors, and so that is moving us in the right direction. You know, personally, I've always wanted Lyle's model to work. I like it. I've been attracted to it. Uh, I've always wanted it to work, but it felt unclear. It felt a bit like special pleading. Um... Until now. So this solution is is fundamentally motivated by the fact that the distant cosmos is young, which um, the authors and, and myself, frankly, feel is based on biblical evidence as well as observational evidence. So let's talk about... Um, some of the building blocks then that go into the CTC model. I promise we're going to talk about the actual model itself. We're going to spell it out here in just a minute, but I want to talk first about some of the building blocks. So as this has been mentioned already, we've got Lyle's anisotropic synchrony convention. I want to read a lengthy excerpt from Lyle's paper on this in 2010. And, uh, um, that will kind of help you get a better understanding of what it is. 
Here it is in Lyle's own words. Quote, the distant starlight problem is resolved if we accept that Genesis is using the Anisotropic Synchrony Convention, or ASC, rather than the Einstein Synchrony Convention. The resolution is simple. Under ASC, the one-way speed of light, when directed toward Earth, is axiomatically infinite, even though the round-trip speed of light remains at 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. Thus, the light from stars uh, that are created on the fourth day will naturally reach the Earth essentially instantaneously. Moreover, we have seen that there are good reasons to suppose that the Bible does indeed use ASC. First, the fact that Genesis implies that the light from the stars created on day four reached Earth on that day naturally implies the ASC convention. Second, such a convention was the only one available to the ancient world. Thus, if the Bible really is designed to communicate truth to all people groups at all times, then ASC is the obvious choice. The Einstein Sacred Convention was not in common use until the early 20th century, and so it makes little sense for God to, to use excuse me, such a convention in the scriptures. Third, we have seen that the Einstein Convention is heavily dependent on the observer's state of motion. Thus, events that are simultaneous in one velocity frame will be spread over millions of years in another. Even the Earth's annual orbit would cause the creation week to become millions of years long. There is no hint of this in the scripture, thereby suggesting that the Bible does not use the Einstein Convention. Indeed, the problem disappears when we use ASC. Close quote. Again, so hopefully that was a little bit better understanding of it. I encourage you to go read that paper. There will be a link to both of these papers in the 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 show notes. And I know there's a lot going on. I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but I'm doing that on purpose. Um, this is a big deal. I, th I think this is a big development. And so that's another reason why I'm going to give you this five-step formula that I use um, to to talk about this with people, okay, so that you, you don't get overwhelmed. Uh, you don't have to know everything that I'm telling you today, or, or at least you don't have to repeat it to be able to have an intelligent conversation about this. So I'm going to give you some pointers, okay? Um, so again, I gravitate toward the suggestion you just read that that you just heard um but i've always been concerned that it's a bit arbitrary so um i think the ctc solution helps us here okay another building block is observation uh, excuse me observational evidence for the youth of the cosmos and we're going to discuss that in just a little bit so i'm going to table that discussion for this moment Third, we have the position of stellar creation events in relation to Earth's day four light cone. Now, let me say that again. This is the position of stellar creation events in relation to Earth's day four light cone. Now, again, I'm going to link you to the paper, and the paper within has a diagram and a thoroughgoing explanation on the last page of what it means to 
uh, for an object to be inside or outside of another object's light cone. So this is some heavy physics stuff that, again, like I told you, I'm not the expert in. I understand it, I believe, enough to, to get the gist of what's going on in the paper, especially using the diagrams. But to try to really explain that to you thoroughly, um, I would probably fail miserably. So here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's here's what you need to know about them. Light cones are conceptual and they allow us to understand the causal relationship between events. Okay, they allow us to understand the causal relationship between events. So basically, if an object A is outside of another object B's light cone, A cannot be said to stand in a causal relationship to B. Now, that's going to become important as we go on, and hopefully you'll see that. But again, I encourage you to download the paper so you can really get a grasp for what we're talking about. Just know that if something is outside of another object's light cone, that it cannot be said to stand in a causal relationship. The one cannot have caused the other. And then, the final building block that we find is a rejection of the cosmological principle. A rejection of the cosmological principle. Now, this is nothing new with respect to creationist cosmologies. Um, the cosmological principle is a fundamental assumption of Big Bang cosmology, which asserts that there is no favored place in the universe. Uh, essentially, there is no center to the universe, no special place anywhere. All right, now th this solution, along with Humphrey's solution, actually posits that this should be rejected. So, a rejection of the cosmological principle should be nothing difficult for those acquainted with um, young age creationist cosmologies. What we have to remember is that it is an assumption. This is not something that, with our current measuring instruments at least, um, can be proved. This is just something that is assumed and fundamental to the Big Bang um, idea. Um, it's necessary for the Big Bang, but it's just an assumption. So if there's no Big Bang, we don't need to assume this. We don't think there was a Big Bang. Therefore, we don't need to assume the cosmological principle. And indeed, I think that what we're going to find works better, especially from the biblical perspective, when we fundamentally reject outright this uh, principle, this assumption. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the solution itself. Allow me to first give you a summary uh, that is taken from the authors. Quote, special initial conditions evolving the events of Genesis 117 offer a solution for the distant starlight problem. We propose that God arranged the stellar creation events found in Genesis 1.17 in space-time along a hypersurface just outside the past light cone of Earth's day 4 and inside the past light cone of Earth's day 5. So outside of the day 4 light cone and inside of the past day 5 light cone. Furthermore, these events are causally independent from one another and from Earth's day four. Such arrangement can be accomplished, for example, by choosing a hyperbolic hyperservice of creation whose slope is everywhere shallower than the slope of the light cone. 
light emitted by a star on its day four arrives at Earth sometime between Earth's day four and five. All right, so here is a breakdown of that. First, we have special conditions created by God's own choice. Special conditions created by God's own choice. Now, I, when I first heard that, I thought, okay, but that still seems kind of arbitrary. Like, it doesn't, in other words, to me, it didn't sound like they were talking about God's own choice. It sounded like they were, ta- they were talking about um, that it had to be God's own choice because this was just something fundamental to the solution. But that's not what they're saying. They're actually basing the argument on the the biblical data, um, much like Lyle did, but extending that to a physical understanding. So these conditions were apparently chosen for the express purpose of ensuring light from distant stars arrived on Earth between the beginning and end of day four. That was the point between the beginning and end of day four. Now listen to this. Listen to God's purpose. We're going to read Genesis 1, 16 through 17. This is God's purpose for the stars. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Now when we read that, we understand that God's purpose for the stars was apparently to give light upon the earth. Now, it doesn't seem to me that that purpose is accomplished when God decreed that it be accomplished. Um, if there are stars that are so far away that their light has never reached the earth. Um, so what we need to understand about that is in order to deal with the what I call the worst version of the problem, you know, we would like to assume that on day six, when God made Adam, that he could also see the stars. Uh, the stars were already there performing the the function for which they had been created by God. And um, in order for that to really happen in any meaningful sense, um, and in a way that those objects are still to be considered young, in the sense of a young age for creation, 6,000 or so years, looking at them today, uh, then in order for that to be the case, we need these special conditions, according to the authors of this paper. Um, and so that is what they are setting out. So, uh, so first we have the special conditions that are created by God's own choice. And it's not arbitrary. This choice is not arbitrary. The reason for... Th- the rest of the solution is because this is the kind of thing that it would take physically in order for the stars to reach the earth when God said that they were to do so. 
Okay, now we also have space-time coordinates of stellar creation events. The space-time coordinates of stellar creation events. This is another aspect of the model. So on this view, these stellar creation events or the creation of stars have space-time coordinates that are just outside of the past light cone of Earth's day four, but they are just within the past light cone of Earth's day five. And again, this essentially means that uh, these the, the creation of these events are causally independent from the Earth. Okay, they are causally independent from each other and causally independent from uh, any relationship to the Earth. Now, again, this ensures that light from even the most distant stars reaches Earth sometime on day four, as indicated by the uh, biblical account. And again, the, the reason for this is, is because we can understand, based on the light cone, um, how these events are causally related, okay? So, this the creation of the stars on day four, um, they were created on day four, but they were placed outside of the light cone on day four. So they are not causally related to um, Earth's day four. However, they're placed in the past light cone. The space-time coordinates of these stellar creation events are placed in the past light cone of Earth's day five, meaning that objectively, objectively, this is not subjective, objectively, the stars were created in the past of day five, but they were not in um, the past or future of day four in the sense that they're not causally related to day four. Now, that, that, that's not, you couldn't say that they're not related to day four in the sense that the day four is when they were created. Objectively, God did create the stars on Earth's day four, but outside, they give them space-time coordinates outside of their light cone, um, okay, outside of the of Earth's day four light cone. And so this special arrangement is what causes that to happen. And again, you're going to need to read the paper to get a little bit better understanding of that. Um, but when you do, when the light bulb goes off, man, it's great. I really think this is something special. Okay, now the third element is the causal independence of stellar creation events. So from one another. All right, so the the guys say that the stellar creation events were further constrained to be causally independent. According to the authors, quote, God could have accomplished this, for example, by arranging the creation events along a hyperbolic hypersurface whose slope is everywhere shallower than the slope of a light cone. Um, see the 
hypersurface of stellar creation in figure one in the paper. And the causal independence of stellar creation events ensures that they can be reckoned as simultaneous. Close quote. All right, so this has to do with the concept of special relativity. Um, known as the uh, relativity of simultaneity. All right. Now I'm going to read you another lengthy um, excerpt from the paper to kind of help shed more light on this. Quote, In addition to selecting the coordinates of stellar creation events in space-time in this special manner, God also prescribed the synchrony convention by which causally independent events are to be reckoned as simultaneous relative to one another. According to special relativity, simultaneity of causally independent events cannot be decided by physical experiments, but instead is a matter of convention. It is a subjective choice. See Appendix A in the paper. We propose, that is the authors, that God's numbering of the creation days in Genesis 1 defines the synchrony convention for all events in the universe. By declaring that stellar creation events took place on creation day four, God sovereignly prescribed that they should be reckoned as simultaneous with one another and with Earth's day four. The synchrony convention can be stated more generally as follows. The creation time coordinate, or CTC, of an event is defined to be the elapsed time between that event and creation day 4 at the event's location, plus 3 days. An event's CTC is therefore the elapsed time since the beginning of Genesis 1-1. Consequently, two events are considered simultaneous uh, synchronous, in other words, if and only if they have the same CTCs. The synchrony convention defined in this matter does not conflict with special relativity because stellar creation events are causally independent. Uh, close quote. So this is a very, I hope you can see, a very intelligent solution um, and totally within the realm of possibility. Um, and not only that, but we have um, evidence from scripture that says that uh, light was created or excuse me, says that the stars were created on day four and says that their purpose was to shine on the earth and says how quickly it was done. By the way, the Bible says, and it was so right? Okay, so uh, not only that, but God had time to call it good, all right? So everything that, that God is doing here is accomplishing his purposes instantaneously. God is speaking, and these things are happening. And uh, this paper is giving us the scientific understanding, the scientific firepower for how such a thing could be possible. And not only is it completely within the realm of, of possibility, but it does not conflict one bit with special relativity or anything. We're, we are not requiring a bunch of special things here. We are spelling out the initial conditions, but again, 
The only reason the conditions are the way they are is because these match the biblical statements. They would accomplish what the Bible requires if we look at the statements surrounding the stellar creation events. Okay, now again, I I don't expect you to come away from this podcast with what I've taught you so far and and what we're going to continue to talk about here with a complete understanding of this. I had to read the paper three times. I've already told you that and do a lot of other research myself. But hopefully you can kind of get the picture that we're going for here. At a In a basic sense, all we're talking about is the initial conditions necessary uh, in order to make what God said in Genesis 1 about the creation of stars and their relation to earth a reality. And the authors have argued that it's completely possible. Now there's a side effect to this, um, and that is that, uh, you know, such a synchrony convention like Lyle's um, ASC necessitates that while Earth is causally affected by stellar events, the reverse is not true. Again, this whole thing centers around the Earth, okay? Now, hence, right, the rejection of the cosmological principle that we talked about earlier. So this seems justified scripturally uh, by Genesis 1.15 and by the fact that man is given dominion over the earth, but not necessarily over the universe. So remember, the focus of Genesis 1 is on the earth. I think we are completely warranted, speaking from a biblical perspective, to think that earth um, is, is different and it's reckoned different in its place in the universe actually by God. And again, his um, insistence on the fact that the stellar uh, bodies are in the service of the earth and those who are on it gives us complete warrant for this. Um, So the authors present kind of a case study of a quite infamous supernova, that is SN 1987A, And I call it infamous because it is often used uh, to show that young age creation advances a deceptive view of God. Uh, I've responded to this a little bit in an article. Um, I don't know that I mentioned the supernova in my response, but the initial article, I think, came from uh, Greg Kogel over there at Stand to Reason, basically said that, um, that because we have this exploded star, it happened in 1987, uh, basically creationists would have to think that God deceptively created the light from that particular star, but that the star itself never existed. Um, and again, the whole thing that the article that they wrote, uh, this was late nineties, um, and others who advance that kind of thing still, which, by the way, uh, it's sadly speaking, I mean, I, I you know, um, this kind of thing is still happening. Uh, those who object to young age creation, even today, many of them still think that we are talking about light created in transit. Uh, they're just not reading our materials. And so we're trying to change that. Um, anyway, I don't want to get on a hobby horse there. We're trying to change that. We're trying to, to do a better job of getting our materials to where people will listen to them. And I think it's working. We're making some progress. Okay. Uh, but again, understand that uh, this supernova is often used because folks think that it advances a deceptive view of God. Okay, so I'm going to walk through these steps, and I've distilled them down from the paper um, 
a little bit here. Okay, now since the supernova is about 168,000 light years away, conventional astronomy dates the explosion at about 166,000 BC. Uh, but young age creationists maintain the initial creation uh, to be around 4,000 or so BC. Again, we can't be dogmatic, we can't be exactly accurate, but somewhere around 4,000 BC is a generous uh, assumption. Okay, um, of course, this would mean that supernova um, 1987a would need to be even younger than the initial creation, of course. Now, on the conventional uh, Einstein synchrony convention, the date of 166,000 years is simply an arbitrary time coordinate. Okay. It would be different assuming a different synchrony convention. Based on what we've talked about so far, hope you understand that. Synchrony convention is a convention by definition. It's a matter of choice. So based on the Einstein synchrony convention, a date is given of about 166,000 years. Now on Lyles, um, anisotropic synchrony convention, uh, there are no initial conditions, no special initial conditions offered, meaning that we can only assume that convention arbitrarily, uh, just as much as we assume the Einstein synchrony convention. So the CTC takes this a bit further and shows scientifically how God has decreed a correct synchrony convention. So this is a uh, major difference uh, between the two solutions. So this is God arbitrary or God, excuse me, objectively declaring a uh, correct synchrony convention based on His statements in Scripture. Um, and we see how it works scientifically. Now, on the CTC solution, the creation time coordinate solution, the creation of the uh, of supernova 1987a, and again, we should say that this is the actual star pre-explosion, the creation of the star that exploded, was a day four event causally independent from the creation of the Earth, or I guess I should uh, more specifically say, a causally independent uh, event from Earth's day four, as per God's command that starlight reach Earth on day four. Okay, so this was a uh, a star that was created on day four, and its light, wherever it was in the universe, um, reached day four. On Earth, it reached Earth on day four. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, this means that we're seeing stellar events happen in something very close to real time, which to me is extremely exciting. Um, and, and and this is the one thing that it goes so so counter uh, so counter to a standard uh, conventional cosmology that uses this Einstein synchrony convention. Uh, but again, it's just a matter of convention. That's all it is. I can't hammer that home hard enough. Um, when we think about the round trip speed of light, we're only looking at it that way because that's the way we've been taught to look at it. Um, there is n n no command that that is exactly the way that light operates. Actually, scientists know very little about light uh, 
relatively speaking, I mean, considering how much we know about other things, they know very little about light. And um, Lyle does a great job demonstrating, actually, that there's no physical test that can be done to show um, which synchrony convention is correct. So thus, we're relying on the biblical information to give us the correct synchrony convention, and by it, and with a rejection of the cosmological principle, which is also biblically warranted, we can see that the correct synchrony convention is that which God decrees specifically in Genesis 1. So since astronomers, uh, relating back to the supernova, observed the explosion of SN 1987A in 1987, one would date the explosion uh, in terms of creation time coordinates at about 4,000 plus 1,987 years, or 5,987 years since creation. So that would be the um, creation time coordinate of that star. So obviously a far cry from the conventional understanding of 166,000 years. Um, Okay, so we are uh, really, really getting late on time. Um, I was going to go ahead and in this week and talk about uh, the evidence for a young cosmos that are presented in uh, in the paper, but since I'm, I'm continuing on some some um, uh, you know some things from this paper next week, I think I'm going to go ahead and save the bib uh, or excuse me the uh, the uh, evidence for a young cosmos for next week as well because I still want to talk just for a moment I mean just for a brief moment about a couple things that we're doing to make um, 2019 great for the podcast so uh, we will continue our discussion of distant starlight and creation time coordinates next week beginning with evidence for a young cosmos and then we're going to talk about some of um, the ways that um, that the CTC solution uh, really um, relates to some of the other models that creationists have put out, as well as the way it relates to some secular models, um, and also answer some potential questions and objections. So again, I've spent, relatively speaking, a little time with it, but I've spent a a good deal, and I'm encouraged, I'm highly encouraged by this solution. It spurred a renewed faith in me, uh, you know, that we could potentially gain scientific insight into the creation event, um, even if incomplete. So this seems to answer my questions beautifully while raising very few new ones, which is always a good thing for any (laughs) solution in my opinion. So, uh, okay, real quick, very, very quickly, some of the housekeeping I wanted to mention. Okay, 2019, in my estimation, is going to be the year of the podcast. I mean, I would like to make a concerted effort to make this podcast the very best it can be in 2019. Uh, I think that, I mean, definitely while we'll explore other things from now on, you know, from, from now on as well, um, the creation topics are still the main thing that, um, everybody, you know, in my, in my crowd likes to hear from me. So we're definitely going to be talking, continually talking, um, uh, you know, with a huge emphasis on young age creation material, especially considering the fact that we have got the, um, 
uh, Creation Academy launching very, very soon uh, here in March. Hopefully, we're going to bring that out to you. So we're definitely going to be hitting heavy on the creation information uh, going forward um, because there's so much uh, exciting stuff to talk about. We've got some great interviews lined up, um, you know, for the new year. Um, some are really exciting. Oh, man, I've got a, a book uh, coming in the mail. As I'm recording this, it'll be tomorrow that the book arrives in the mail, uh, written by a very, very popular popular author in the intelligent design community that I'm going to be interviewing when his book launches here in a few months. And I'm so excited to even tell you that. I'm not telling you his name quite yet, but I'm very, very excited about this opportunity. Okay, so uh, this is going to be the year of the podcast. So you remember back in episode 61, I talked about my reasons for starting the Steve Stram show. Um, and, you know, why I wanted to do it this way uh, rather than the Creation Academy. Uh, just to be a little honest with you, and I'm, I'm kind of sad to report this, but my numbers, my numbers dropped off significantly after I made that change. Um, I mean, I was, uh, you know, and not that the numbers matter uh, necessarily to me, but I do want the information to get to as many people possible. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you understand that. And uh, so definitely we don't have as many people listening right now as we did when the podcast was the Creation Academy. And, uh, you know, I hope it didn't offend anybody. Um, I didn't receive any offensive messages from anyone. Um, but, you know, uh, some people just, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, for whatever reason, listenership dropped off a little bit. And um, I was sad to see that, especially since in episode uh, 61, I talked about how the show would largely be remaining the same. I just wanted to have the freedom to comment on some other issues from time to time as well. And so that's what I do. And so those of you who are listening, I thank you for sticking around. Um, I I'm still writing on the blog. Uh, you know, I I've got kind of a, a goal to have at least, a a you know, a, a few um, very well-researched, in-depth articles per year. Those are the kind I like to write. I just, I don't know. I don't like to write short articles. I don't know what it is. It's just, I don't enjoy doing it. I like having the time and the space to be able to elaborate on um, on my ideas and to really expand on them um, inside of a blog post like that. So there will definitely be some articles coming out, but for the most part, we're going to focus the ministry this year on enhancing the of the value I provide in this podcast. I want to continue like the podcast has gone on. I want to continue with the um, idea that each podcast episode is going to be very helpful, very informative, um, kind of a, a mini, you know, training lesson. I mean, I, I want to spend a lot of time in the prep work on the podcast and be able to give you useful information. So to do that, I've got three awesome additions that we're going to be uh, doing, uh, things that are happening this year with the podcast that I'm excited about. The first is a project manager. Uh, my wife, Tiffany, has actually come on as a part-time project manager for uh, for the ministry, which allows me to spend more time developing thorough, valuable podcast lessons. Um She's handling some of the stuff such as posting the podcasts to social media, um, etc. I mean, that's basically the main thing. She's putting the podcasts up to the website after I get done with them and then putting them out on social media. So she'll eventually be doing some other things too. But this allows me to spend my time creating the content and then interacting with you all once we get it out there to social media and the different places where you guys interact with me. Okay, the second thing that we're doing, which I mentioned a couple times already, is a free lesson handout. 
um, Lord willing, each lesson, and I don't know that it'll be each and every lesson, and sometimes if two or three lessons are related in a series, it might be the same handout for that series, um, sometimes maybe not, but nearly every lesson is going to feature a free downloadable PDF handout that enhances the information in the lesson um, and not just repeats it unless it's um, unless it's warranted there. And there are times when maybe, you know, uh, you know, maybe you need more detailed notes than I give in the actual show notes. And this would be a way for me to provide that for you. Um, but again, it's usually going to be for the purposes of some sort of a practical application. So we talked about a lot of theoretical um physical but theoretical, you know, starlight kind of stuff in this paper, uh, this podcast lesson um, today. So it's kind of like, well, how do we practically apply that? Well, I'm going to give you five um, ways. It's kind of like a five-step formula that I use when I'm discussing distant starlight with other folks um, who come from outside of the young age creationist perspective to help them understand, um, frankly, without thinking that I'm a loon, (laughs) because I'm not a loon. I'm a person who has done a lot of research into these things, but but people who haven't done a lot of research into these things just assume that everybody thinks the same thing on these issues. And so I want to give you practical ways to help navigate some of the information and to use some of the information that we give you in the podcast in your witnessing and your discussions sharing Christianity. Um, okay, so that's what that's going to be about. And Lord willing, close to every lesson will have its own free downloadable PDF handout. You can always get those in the show notes, and I'll give you a link to that every time and mention what that is in the podcast episode. And then finally, and I'm really excited about this, and really nervous about this, um, but finally, uh, we're going to start a free podcast community, a free podcast community on Facebook. It's going to be a Facebook group. It will be a closed group. Um, I should say it is a closed group that you have to request access to, but there's no special conditions, no questions. Uh, Basically, you just request access and we allow you in. This helps us to keep from spammers and things like that coming in there. Um, But anybody is welcome to join for, you know, as far as that goes. If you're a listener to the podcast especially, we're welcome to have you there. That way, we can talk about these things together. I will be active in the group. I'm, I do have my wife uh, in there as a as a moderator in the group, but it's primarily just going to be me. And you know, I mean, maybe maybe others will come in too that 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 are you know that talk about these things quite a bit. But but it's just designed to be a way for me to be able to interact directly with you. If you guys have questions for the podcast, upcoming show ideas, if you want to talk about the subject matter that we've talked about in the podcast. Um, let's do it there. I mean, let, come on over into the Facebook group and let's you and me have a conversation. I mean, uh, frankly, I'm just really, really excited about the possibilities that offers. Um, I'm not committing to this yet because I don't have a good space to do it uh, right now. But eventually, I would like to do weekly, you know, like live Facebook videos actually inside of the group that maybe even feature like a Q&A of the subject matter that we talked about on the podcast lesson. I mean, I have lots of plans, but I'm never going to be able to do any of it if nobody jumps in there with me. So I'm so excited about it. I want you to jump in there and join me. The link to it is going to be in the... uh, uh, show notes. I I think the link is facebook.com slash groups slash Steve Schramm 
podcast. I, I think that is the uh, link to it, but I'm not 100% sure. And so I kind of hate to tell you without knowing. Um, you know, I have a computer here. I suppose I could just go ahead and look it up really quick. And I think that's what I'm going to do. So, uh, yeah, the link for the group is, oh, it's actually Steve, uh, excuse me, it's actually facebook.com slash groups slash Steve Shram podcast community. Facebook.com slash groups slash Steve Shram podcast community. And you can be sure I'm going to go ahead and stick a link to that right there in the show notes so that you can get to it yourself um, and uh, request to join. So I'm very, very excited about that. That's going to be a welcome addition to the podcast this year, in addition to the lesson handouts and also my wife helping, which will allow me to create better content for you. All right. That's all I have for you. I'm really excited about the new year going into the new year and, um, and, uh, you know, seeing what kinds of things are going to come from our ministry efforts this year. Again, none of it is possible without you. So I know this episode's gone a little long, but I want to thank you for sticking with me and for staying with me all throughout this time. Um, I love you and uh, you mean the world to me and also to my family. Okay. Let's say a word of prayer, close out for today. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and want to say thank you again for the opportunity that you give us to study not only your word, but also your world. And Lord, to be able to um, evaluate these uh, different uh, solutions that are offered for what many see as a big stumbling block to the what we believe is the biblical position. Lord, thank you for giving us a smart, you know, educated guys who really understand this stuff, who can offer these solutions, Lord. And for those of us who um, aren't uh, as scientifically inclined, maybe as some of them, Lord, thank you for the ability for them to be able to write such that we can understand it. So, Father, we love you and just uh, want to be thankful for the new year that you've given us. And I pray now that you would help us, Lord, to make a bigger impact, not just this ministry, but Lord, everybody who's listening. I pray that it would be our collective prayer that we'd make a bigger impact for you this year than we've ever made before. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. I'm going to go ahead and get out of here. Thanks again for joining me. It's been uh, a, a great time talking about this. Don't forget to tune in. Next week, we're going to be talking about this again, talking about the evidence for a young cosmos that they argue for in the paper and also responding to some common questions and objections, some that they have anticipated. And uh, if any of you guys ask me some questions between now and then, maybe we can work those in as well. All right. So God bless you guys. I love you. Have a great one. Bye-bye.